Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your guest host this week, Sean Sands. Uh, joining me this week, we have Rowan Kaiser. Hello, Rowan. Hello again. Hello, and we have TJ Hafer. Hi, TJ. Hey, what's going on? Uh, I'm just hosting a Three Moves Ahead. Oh, okay, so cool. Yeah, that's good. Great. I love that podcast. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, <laughs> If I'm hosting, uh, there's a pretty good chance uh, that the topic is going to be Europa Universalis 4, uh, and that is exactly what we're going to talk about for the next hour or so. Uh, the Rights of Man expansion came out. Now it's about a month old. I know uh, when it first came out, we were all pretty high on it and uh, wanted to get a chance to come back and talk to it. Um, but in general, now that it's been out for a few weeks, I do want to kind of touch in on that. But I also want to just uh, get a sort of a state of the game as a whole. It, you know, I was looking up before we started recording. Uh, EU4 is three years old. It turned three years old just this past August. And Rights of Man is its ninth expansion. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of want to get into it a little bit. Like, uh, how far does this this particular train go? Even, you know, we can look at something like Crusader Kings 2 as well. Uh, what's, the, what's the exit strategy for a game like this? But first, uh, I want to dive a bit in into uh, into Rights of Man. Um, and, and it's funny, and, and then I'll throw it to you guys because I'm interested in what you think, but I was looking back at the things that were added with expansion and how much some of those things have just insinuated themselves into like my standard expectation for the game. I mean, I think the big ones are like institutions. Um, yeah. For the you know the 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 great powers um, regencies you know there's all these huge improvements. Uh, TJ, I'm I'm, I'm curious. Uh, have you kind of gotten to that point too, where it's just like, well, well, yeah, these yeah. are all supposed to be in the game. Well, it's funny. Like when people ask me, I get asked a lot. You know, like if I'm new to the series, which expansions should I buy? And with CK2, that's pretty easy because i can think back to each one and have a pretty good idea of where it what it added but with eu4 expansions at this point they have they've all kind of as as you said woven <laughs> themselves into the standard expectation for somebody who plays this game as many hundreds of hours as we do that mm -hmm. it's it becomes hard to like figure out okay what what was added in this expansion what was added in this expansion what was part of the free patch what do you actually need to buy um yeah, I, I had like three just on that point. I had like a moment when I was prepping up the notes for this where I was like, I should make a quiz and quiz these guys on which <laughs> expansion each thing. And then I thought, no, that's a terrible idea and make terrible radio. I don't even want to do that. But yeah, I mean, go on because your point's absolutely right that it's just, it's yeah. all kind of insinuated together. Well, well, Rights of Man and 1.18, I think, are probably the biggest milestone. Honestly, if I had to pick one for like the most. The game changed from one patch cycle to the next, um, mm -hmm. especially, you know, with adding institutions, with adding the one I don't get heard here get talked about nearly as much as, you know, ruler traits. Yeah. Making rulers more like characters, which I love because I'm a big role player, you know, EU4 as a story generator type of player. Um, so I love that stuff. They've they've really kind of changed the game more fundamentally i think these last couple of patches than they have with any given patch cycle before now i guess art of war is somewhat comparable um in terms of what it did for warfare and this is kind of the non-warfare equivalent of that yeah I, I totally agree i think the uh i think the expansion impacts so much more of the game i would say even than art of war like art of war is very limited into those when you're at war things are happening but this is mm -hmm. sort of pan uh pan the entire you know 400 years of the game ron i'm interested in your take um i was going to say that the expansion that added development probably did as much but i don't remember which one that was which kind of goes <laughs> yeah. to the point the thing the thing is there are runs you will play where you will barely use development at all um yeah. there there are ones there are some runs that are completely dependent on development like when i tried to do uh one province free city hamburg all the way up to uh 1821 and was able to field like a 36 regiment army by the end of it um <laughs> but uh yeah development i feel it it was pretty significant especially with how it ties into into institutions now that's actually given some new life to development where i could like play as Korea and force the Renaissance to spawn in Korea <laughs> when I wasn't touching any provinces remotely close to Italy, uh, just using development, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. The, the thing that institutions do, and I think this is the biggest change in, uh, 
Rights of Man is that they kind of reinforce that this game is about um, cycles, waves, whatever, highs mm-hmm. and lows. Mm-hmm. And so the inst- what the institutions do is when this new thing spawns, the institution, wherever, and TJ, you know, like the precise nature of like what yeah. development causes. I wrote them a whole guide to to, yep. <laughs> to do that. He, he he is our expert on that. Um, but they when they spawn wherever and however they spawn, um, then it slows down technology for everyone who doesn't have this institution, and they spread basically geographically. Although some of them spread like more specifically like the manufacturing spread to places that have manufactories. Mm-hmm. But in general, they sort of spread from where they came. So if an institution spawns and a part of the map that you are not, then your tech gets way slower. And for the duration of this period, while you're waiting or attempting to get this institution into your lands, you are basically forced to choose what am i doing with my monarch points am i saving them to try to get technology even though it's going to be significantly more expensive am i using them to buy development or am i you know hunkering down and just waiting am i actively trying to get as much as i can out of this or when you get the an institution before anyone else you also have these choices of okay now i have significantly better tech than everyone else should i just try to just go on a rampage and see how far that takes me it also allows you to 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 um it opens up the the institution stealing idea where you can play as as japan or you can play as the ming and if you found colonialism before europe does i mean they're they're almost pre-scripted to get the renaissance actually they are pre-scripted to get the renaissance before anyone else but then if east asia gets colonialism first everybody's going to be at a 50 percent tech penalty and those two areas of the world will basically develop technologically in parallel because they're both missing one of the two institutions that are active at that time yeah this is one of the other things that this does in addition to potentially creating a kind of more grand alternate history of you know like human geography and the understanding of the entire world as opposed to just how the nation states interact is that it makes any sort of non-historical start more interesting so as someone who does a lot of imports and custom games it has made those significantly more interesting to play because you don't know exactly where the renaissance is going to spawn Mm -hmm. i just had a game where it spawned in the horn of africa and You know, I, all I, of I Europe is... The, yeah, the caliphate stayed strong and it spawned in Persia. <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's uh, it creates a really fascinating dynamic for pretty much all these other points of entry into the game. And, you know, so I've had games where the uh, New World is divided between Spain and the Ming, and that's just bizarre and fascinating. From so. from sort of a mechanics perspective, the one thing I really love about it is that it feels <clears throat> it, it feels really well balanced. It feels like a it, you know thing. It, it it makes a kind of sense and it extends in a really logical way. And what I mean by that is, let's say you are doing that Korea example where okay things spawn pretty much where they're supposed to spawn, uh, but you go for that you know you dump a few thousand points into development to get your, you know, to kind of bring that institution to your nation. Because of the way that institutions expand from there, that doesn't mean you're now at a permanent advantage, right? You have brought it into this region, but it is still going to spread. You know, right. the, the, the big fear I had initially going into it is, okay, I start as, you know, Bamanis or somewhere in, you know, uh, Bengal or, you know, and, and then I get my institution and now I'm just sort of, you know, uber teched up for the rest of the game and you know nothing else can kind of stand in my way until i hit europe but no the the mechanics kind of balance it out uh in the long run that it just kind of begins expanding out from you so your direct neighbors are the ones most likely to now get access to that same technology which makes sense and it also makes the game more fun to play one point i really like to make that that it had slipped from my mind but this was something i was raving about when rights of man first came out is the idea that if you're playing as a peripheral, you know, nation like Korea 
and you you do that strategy of dumping development to get institutions, it encourages you to actually spend your development logically, which was yes. something that didn't exist before. It was like, just develop whatever province has the lowest development cost for the most, you know, monetary output or manpower output or whatever. But playing as Korea, it's like, okay, I had one metropolis that I set up for spawning the Renaissance, and then I moved to another area that had lower development cost and used that one to get, um, you know, global trade. And then I had another one that I used to get the printing press. So my development was spread out in such a way that it was, it was in, you know, concentrated in these three urban centers, which makes a lot more sense from a historical kind of role player standpoint of how you would want to spend your development points. Another thing about the balance is that it's um, because the development is based on number of provinces you have and in order to – or not development, the institutions. um, In order to embrace them, the more provinces you have, the more money it costs. So smaller powers can – even like your neighbors, if you get the development or the institution first – there's so many – these terms are all the same. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you get the institutions first, but you have a smaller neighbor, they might be able to embrace it and get a massive advantage over you until your giant empire can actually take the time to, you know, just sit down and make enough money to spend yeah. 2,000 gold. Which and... both of those things sort of, to me, kind of tip toward the idea of making playing tall a little more fun too which i think is also something oh, that's yeah. already always sort of been missing uh from from the game to some degree well i surpassed the ming as a great power in like the early 1600s as korea because they were getting all their institutions from me but it was taking them forever to spread mm-hmm. to the point where they could actually afford to embrace it because i think they also i think their government type gives them like a minus 15 percent to institution spread or something like that now so it, yeah and at one <laughs> no, point i had to sell don't play Ming. got it I'm yeah at, at one point i had i had the same tech speed as like florence i was at 100 percent tech oh. speed and they were at like 175 or something so even though i had less than half their development i displaced them on the great power board which was a pretty satisfying moment yeah it, yeah it, they, it, ming have a bunch of uh events and uh, sort of internal things that make them not the obvious superpower that maybe they should be given their status as the obvious superpower of the world when the game starts. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of stuff that exists to kind of model the collapse of what could easily have been the world colonial power. Yeah. Which the thing is, if you do go colonial as Ming, that's one way to pull them out of that spiral. Because if you steal the colonialism institution from Europe... You nerf Europe pretty heavily, and you get a good, you know, start on becoming the world's preeminent superpower again. And you, I mean, wait, so so tell me, like, how do you steal it? Because I, I don't know the details on at least that institution. So for, for uh, colonialism to spawn, it has to be in a port that is on the same continent of an old world nation that has discovered at least one province gotcha. in the new world. So you basically have to race Portugal. You have to like find Alaska or California before they get to Bermuda or South America or wherever. And then the longer your lead is, the longer the chance will be that it will spawn in China before any of the Europeans actually discover the new world. Nice. I'm going to have to try that. Um Yeah. Another another uh, kind of a big uh, one that, that we mentioned earlier in this is, and I'll just kind of lump them all together, is the changes to uh, queens and kings and heirs and personality traits in general. Like, there's just a lot in there that I think mm-hmm. has added, a, like, I, I, I think you got right to the heart of it, TJ. Like, it has added a layer that hasn't existed as much in this game. I mean, definitely, you know, it, it harkens a little bit to CK, too. Um, but it's another one where it's just like, thank God this is here. <laughs> yeah. It's it's CK2 light, basically. Right. Very, yes. very light. Yeah. Um, yeah, rulers can be, you know, they, they can be, you know, rash or they can be cautious and it'll actually change how the AI behaves, which I like a lot um, because it, it leads to more a historical scenarios and kind of allows you to get a feel for other AI nations in single player, which I play 95 percent single player. Um, and yeah, I just love the flavor it adds. There's a lot of new events related to 
rulers and their specific traits into heirs and and queen regents and you know consorts and all these things that i i look at history mostly through a lens of the people that were part of it so anything that puts the focus more on the people and less on things like abstract nation states and movements is going to be a big win in my book i think one of the things that i really enjoy about it is um I guess I think of it more sort of as the gamer side of it, just pure the degree of control it gives me over shaping what I, you know, kind of how I want uh, my lineage to go. But honestly, I've never sort of sat back and made a non-numbers-based decision, which I think you... I, I think that's still the big difference between, you know, something like this, like you say, a Crusader Kings 2 light um, versus, you know, Crusader Kings 2, where, you know, there there's so much narrative shaping you can do in a game like that. And this one, ultimately, if I have my heir has a cool trait that just naturally fits into the way I'm building out, uh, but he's a 101, he's he's definitely going to die. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. Ron, I'm interested, uh, you know, from I, I want to kind of dwell for a minute on this sort of ahistorical idea, because one of the things that I've I'm starting to struggle with a little bit, um, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it I'm struggle with way overstating it, but it's something I'm aware of is because of institutions, because of how much, you know, control you have over these things, because of, you know, that kind of degree of um, change that can happen to AI leaders and how they, you know, how, how the nations act. Uh, I just can consistently see this game kind of diverging itself from a historical, you know, if you think about EU4 when it first came out, a much more, not pure, but certainly, um, you know, somewhat uh, uh, historical limited it's going to fit within a certain range and that range keeps opening and opening and opening but Rowan you mentioned you like to kind of bring over these games and, and, and convert them and they certainly look nothing like the real world is that something that you think about at all or, I mean are you looking for this to be sort of a historical simulator or are you like ah, hell with it let's have fun well, well I mean I think that the interesting thing about this compared to the previous uh, Europa Universalis games is that it's trying to make all these grand historical moments seem system-based instead of event-based. So when, when I convert a game or when I start a custom game, what I'm not – what I'm looking for is not necessarily you know actual history but a sort of um, – uh, proof that the systems that would go into making the regular EU4 game are functioning correctly in a way that will make a history-like situation, given my import, actually happen. And uh, some of the time, you know, there's just a really weird thing where, uh, you know, it randomly has or I import a game that just has a gigantic empire in Europe that dominates everything. And uh, the game does not respond terribly well to that. But y apart from that, it usually does a really good job of creating a set of superpowers. And the, the sort of narrative of the game is, you know, you have a whole bunch of small to medium-sized countries in Europe and in the process of the medium ones kind of swallowing up the smaller ones, the narrative of the game and the map in your country goes from, you know, you're allied to three German city-states and a local power to you're allied with five different gigantic empires all across the map. Like, it's, there's a sort of slow expansion of your interests in the, in the game world. Um, and... Well, you can see that really working well in an import or a custom game because the exact same kind of situation happens. You go from a small pseudo-country to a giant nation-state or empire, and um, it kind of suggests that when you, know, you do play the historical stuff, what's going on actually makes a certain kind of sense. It has a historical narrative, which is of the rise of the nation-state, mm -hmm. exactly. and it manages to create that even when it's not doing that entirely by events. I mean, obviously the Ming are the exception there and there may not, there may just not be a good way to 
have the Ming not be like that. But otherwise, um, yeah, it's it's created this particular narrative, and that narrative might not be, you know, here's you know, Russia is going to get involved in these wars at these times. That narrative may just be whoever manages to take control of the Russian steps is going to be a superpower. But it works. I like yeah, I like that perspective. That I, I kind of hadn't thought of it in that way, but 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 that that idea that history, the history of the sort of the natural evolution of government types and 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 nations and empires over this time period. Um, is more defined by rules, you know, than than that, not rules, but more defined by, you know, these sort of, for lack of a better word, institutions um, than for just saying, okay, now it's time for Spain and Aragon to have their marriage and go. Um, TJ, I'm I'm curious. I mean, how do you, where do you come down? You know, how 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 historical are you looking for a game like this to be? And and I realize it's not a history simulator, but at the same right. time, right. <laughs> Um, I like, I like to, I, in my ideal grand strategy game would maintain a high degree of historical plausibility without necessarily, you know, railroading for historical accuracy. So even today there are things in, in CK2 and E4 that I can point to where I'm like, eh, cause and effect wise, that's a little iffy. I wish they would figure out a better way to do that, but I, I, Definitely, you know, don't want it to follow the exact same historical narrative that we're used to. Um, what I'm looking for is something that more like that feels possible. I mean, I've this is an EU4 show. I've been playing a lot of CK2 lately, too, and the border gore in that game is still a huge headache for me because it's like there's no reason they would have those two provinces, you know, hundreds of miles away from yeah anything that they would be able to administer whatsoever. Um so yeah, I kind of I kind of see it as you know, anything where you involve a player, it's going to be semi futile to try to to have it follow a historical course cuz there's going to be this butterfly effect with any player meddling is going to set off dominoes that is going to cause, you know, 1821 to look very different from the real world 1821 even if you game, you know, programmed a game that the AI would play exactly correctly, you know, to to have have an exactly historical outcome with no player involvement. Um, and that's not even necessarily something I think I would want either. I do like the randomness of it. I do like seeing other parts of the world that I haven't really been involved in, you know, what kind of crazy stuff happens there, especially if you're playing outside of Europe. There's always that moment where it's like, oh, Europe's revealed. Let's see what, what uh, they got <laughs> themselves into this time. So That's my favorite. Yeah. I love that. I think a, a good counterexample counter or something here would be hearts of iron four which actually has uh-huh. its um kind of i i don't remember what the term is but the um kind of social development of each nation and their choices there's a lot of alternate history stuff that the player can choose but on a menu you can decide whether the ai will choose that or not right so if the ai is on the historical path as germany it's going to go okay first austria then czechoslovakia then poland then france then russia mm-hmm. but yeah if you as the player go and do something to mess that up, like I went and played France and converted to communism and joined the Comintern. So when Germany declared war on me, the Russians declared war on them, and that was not good for the Germans. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, that's it, something I would yeah. – That's That's exactly the sort of thing that you know is possible to – do in a game of that limited scope of the just those 15 years whereas in eu4 like that's something like that is always going to happen inevitably over the 380 year span well and there's also this divide between we as players are going to generally play a certain way um because we you know as humans we like to optimize things and we have a lot of information on how to do that that maybe an an ai would not be able to handle but personally because i am sort of a role player and because i see grand strategy games as story generators i don't necessarily want the ai to do that i kind of i mean that's part of the reason i love ruler traits like i want to feel like i'm in a world as a player where all of my opponents are acting like these nations would have acted historically 
I don't really want them to to uh, be coded to try to emulate a player in multiplayer who's trying to defeat me. I would much rather that they be coded to, you know, increase my immersion and act the way that, you know, you would expect the Ottoman Empire to act or the way you would expect the Manchu to act. Mm -hmm. um, and can we can we talk you know, for a sec about one of the weirdest patch notes uh, or absolutely. I don't know about weirdest, but <laughs> sure. The, the AI is now programmed to try to make their borders pretty. Yes. I love that. That's <laughs> that's just well, like I, I I would even go further to say that if you have ridiculous borders, you should take some kind of administrative penalty to doing that. <laughs> I hate it when I see posts on Reddit that are like someone built like a snake from, you know, the steps all the way to Venice just so they could pick up institutions faster. That's so stupid. Like I I know I'm I'm big on immersion and I'm big on on my role play and stuff, but that stuff just drives me nuts. I, no, I mean, it's it's just interesting <laughs> to have this idea because I know it's actually a legitimate historical thing. Right. Like the scramble for Africa in many ways was these countries wanted to paint Africa their color. And That's true. That is true. That's it's it's absurd and obscene given what they actually did to when they did that, but it is actually a legitimate historical motive it's, that even even uh, can't be even carries play. over into Hearts of Iron 4, where <laughs> I was playing a South Africa game, and it's like, you liberate Angola, and there's still that little strip of Belgian Congo <laughs> that for some reason sticks out into the coast, because they had to have a port <laughs> to be able to supply the Belgian Congo. I think, yep. uh, yeah, I think this goes to the whole thing that, that, that we're getting to, though, which is that um, I, I, I kind of love the, 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 not silly, but kind of... Uh, vaguely illogical nature of it in kind of reflecting, uh, you know, the nature of the mindsets in the time period suggests. Right? It wouldn't be it wouldn't be fun if Portugal, you know, just didn't didn't expand, didn't do any colonization, and instead just sort of picked up little polka dots of uh, of Portuguese territory all over Europe. Like that just wouldn't feel like a satisfying result, both from sort of a contextual well they would never do that perspective and then just from the aesthetics of it just no don't do that the uh the last uh uh kind of rights of man bit i want i want to dive into and and, and for me it's been something i thought i'd be interested in and just haven't been as interested in as much and i want to ask you guys if i'm missing something here um is the whole kind of great power mechanic where you know the top 10 uh, scoring um, countries sort of have these additional diplomatic options. Uh, war can go a little differently for them. And, uh, and I guess there's sort of, you know, you get power projection and some other stuff. Um, it just, like, I don't think about it very much. I'm curious if if you do. Um, well, it it's kind of, to some degree, they're, they're overlapping the two games on other side of EU4. They're bringing some CK2 light into it with, you know, the new ruler traits. And then they're also sort of attacking it from the other direction and bringing in a little bit of, you know, Victoria 2 light with the idea that there's these, you know, these eight nations that are the great powers and they're going to be able to exert, you know, indirect influence on, on all these different nations. Um, I think it, it in a way, it's a, a good feature in it's for for a game like EU4 because it's something that opens up new options but doesn't feel necessary. You can play, you know, perfectly optimally with your playstyle that you've been working, you know, working with for so many patches and and kind of ignore great powers, but it does if you want to, it does open up some new ways to play the game other than you know just going to war and, and conquering stuff you can actually do get more stuff done to benefit your nation with diplomacy as a great power than you could without great power status um but yeah the most i've gotten out of it so far honestly is just being able to thumb my nose at the ming that <laughs> I, I displaced them as a great power as tiny little korea with my three you know 45 development <laughs> mega cities or whatever yeah well i think that there are two two parts of it that are worth discussing the the great power kind of leaderboard is uh -huh. 
a really neat thing that the game was missing. Like the score, yeah. the score system that the game had in the past was um, not good. Uh, Nobody pays like, attention to it unless you're yeah. playing in the Paradox Developer multiplayer stream. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's just, it's um, not transparent at all. When yeah. you know the ga- whole game is trying to aim towards being more transparent, and um, especially if you're playing a historical game, then it's like okay, you're guaranteed to see it be go France, Ottomans, then maybe the player. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe the Russians can pass the Ottomans sometimes, but it's it's just not really it's it's very predictable and it's not very interesting. Whereas the great power thing is extremely transparent. It's amount of development uh, times your or divided by your institution penalty, and so you can actually just take a look at this and see, oh, this is a game that's really balanced toward Europe right now, or really balanced towards Asia, or. You know, that you're having these small minor powers suddenly become major players. And that's it's a good way to just kind of keep a tab on both how you're doing in the game and how uh, how the overall narrative of the world is going. The other part, the actual options that you get for being on that great power list, I don't think... I have not used too much as a player. I've occasionally like done the influence thing in order to, you know, get a get a mission done. Um I don't think I've used break alliance on people more than once or twice, but the thing that I think it does that makes it important is that it lets the AI do those things. So the AI yeah, it, it's a good for point. us that's those are a few little options that are buried at the bottom of a menu that we're may just never scroll down and see and that's okay but the ai is constantly thinking about them using break alliance in order to keep its great powers great it's um well also... i've seen yeah like france will buy up the debt of like a bunch of bankrupt miners in the low countries which will allow them to you know rebel from austria or spain or whoever owns that region more effectively because you know the French bought up their debt to you know bail them out and sort of get back at their enemies, and also uh, the the sort of intervene in war thing allows the AI countries to kind of have a counterbalance to players who are trying to game the system. Right. Yeah. So Ally you France know, wait- and go to war against you know some hre minor <laughs> yeah so so in my custom so my custom yeah. game right now you know i have or my my ck2 import i have a very powerful germany and i am a very powerful burgundy and like my instinct is always okay i'm going to declare war on them when they're you know halfway through a war with another power and then all of a sudden like repeatedly another great power will step in and say if you don't stop this because we know you're going to kick their ass and we don't want you to be too big like that's the way i interpret it Mm -hmm. that's how the ai should behave um then now you're going to have twice as big a war on your hands and so you know you could just say all right i will just go with a white piece thanks for uh (laughs) thanks for checking in checking in guys (laughs) yeah it it also it also gives you more uh, options for inter hre gameplay because if you buddy up with you know a france or an england or a muscovy and there's a really strong austria you know you can go to war with another hre prince and, you know, Austria will be obligated to protect them, but then maybe your, you know, your great power friend will decide to intervene on your side. And it's not like Austria gets to tell you you're done expanding. Um, so that's that's another cool, yeah. you know, twist that that added. So I think, I mean, on the whole, um, I'm gonna, I, I kind of read this, you know, I, I kind of want to put a bow on rights of man here and, and move on to sort of a bigger topic. Um, All right. But, uh, I, I mean... It's pretty good, right? I mean, are we still like when we were first talking? It's about a really this, good experience. Yeah, we we were all real excited. We got a month under our belt, um, but I'm still really high on this particular expansion. I think I think uh, it's the best expansion since Art of War, and maybe the best expansion overall that has come out for Euphoria. If you count the the accompanying patch features yeah. as part of that larger fair. whole, yeah, yeah, I think that. Um... It may be the only expansion that I'm going to sit around and remember what it does. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like, there have been other expansions that have done good things, but this one is like, okay, you have to have this one. Um, 
Troy had a thing the other day where he asked people who like might be interested in EU4 what was stopping them and um for a lot of them it was you know interface stuff and so on but there was like probably like at least half the respondents were like I don't know what to do with all that DLC yeah yeah and like now I could say well you definitely need this one yeah I think paradox should really be have at the forefront of their advertising wait for steam sales and all of this stuff is going to be 75 percent off like that's that should be their i i I think that they should have like everything that's over a year old just packaged with the vanilla game yeah i mean world of warcraft started Mm -hmm. doing that and it worked for them yeah 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 like it's it should it should be more subscription oriented or something like that unless here is a giant pile of things that you need to worry about i do worry Um, like even if they did that though i i mean one of the things i think about is is you know is this is this still a game you know if you got the eu4 total pack for thirty dollars on an expansion or something like that i don't know how you start that for the first time I, yeah. I feel like it's pretty similar. Like the, the only things that I would say are really different and going to mess up a new player is like development. But you could go a whole game without really knowing what development does and yeah. be pretty okay. Especially like I remember, if, if you're just playing Map Painter, you're never going to really use development anyway. Yeah, my my first ever Crusader Kings two game, I didn't know how to build buildings. It was fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it, like it was obviously I could have done better. I could have been maxed more. I started as like a small duke and by the end of the game I had was like, I think a pretty major independent duke or king or something, but it was like okay, you know, there's you could figure out this stuff as you go along. Um and, I was you know, I was stuff still like discovering is fairly similar. Yeah, I was still discovering major mechanics in Crusader Kings 2 with 100 hours logged in the game. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it, to some degree, yeah, it's hard to start as the Ottomans and be like, well, I didn't develop, uh, you know, my 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 cores enough, so I lost. And prob- probably not. Probably you didn't do that. That's, no. Yeah. That's, yeah. Not, that's not how that goes. Yeah. But, I, I mean, at the same time, I, I think one of the things I really liked when EU4 first came out is even if I didn't know all of the major mechanics, like, things still seemed compact. Things seemed... Like, if I spent some time, it would be accessible. And, you know, even, you know, kind of, it, it almost, to me, it's sort of like that sort of EU3, Hearts of Iron 3 mentality, where now it's so, even even though you only need these small set of things to absolutely be able to play, there's so many menus and layers and decisions and, you know, things that even if you don't need it, you click on a button, it's like, well, there are nine buttons on this menu and 13 you know, number columns. And now how do I, how do I, how do I parse that? I, you know, because it's funny because I mean, I, and where I'm coming at from this, I think is, is sort of the idea that it, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, particularly with something like EU4 and I think, you know, Hearts of Iron 4 and, and Stellaris, um, there's sort of clearly this sort of ethos, this idea of we want to make these games very, very accessible. And to do that, you sort of reduce down and make it, you know, make things make sense uh, in clusters instead of, you know, kind of having it just spread out in a big map in front of you uh, full of full of all these numbers. And inevitably, it feels to me like as you layer on expansion after expansion after expansion, you necessarily kind of revert to the older style. Am I just being, you know, am I, am I being too too sensitive or, or it does well, it break away uh, from the idea? I think this is true for Crusader Kings, which is become a bit of a problem for that and it's true for eu4 in two specific ways one of which i think is probably my biggest issue with the games these days is um the estates just seems like it's layered on i I was gonna say the exact same thing like it it feels like babysit like if, if they took estates out tomorrow i don't think i would care i don't think i would miss them at all I don't think they actively hinder my enjoyment, but if they disappeared, I would hardly notice. They, they're they're basically busy work. Every 10 years you have yeah. an option, and every so often you have to go and add a new province to whichever oh, estate and, is complaining. And later in the and, game, when you're if you're a, playing as a big nation, every war is followed by, oh, states want control of this. It's, oh, yeah, just, yeah. No. <laughs> and 
and I never find myself using all those options, like, you know, asking the, the burgers for money or recruiting. Sometimes I'll recruit a general from the nobles as, like, part of my opening strategy in 1444 if I'm playing a, a nation with crappy military tradition and I really need to win an early war, but I just don't really find that I interact with them that much except for getting them to shut up and yeah, they, not start a civil war. They're, they're, they're built around negative reinforcement. You, you, if you don't do something right, then something will go bad. There's no real positive reinforcement to them. Um, and so they're just kind of a layer that's there that could really use some work. And I think it would be possible to do it if they wanted to. But uh, right now, it's just not really that exciting. I, the, I f- the, other, the other major layer is the development, which we've talked about. And that's just... I don't know that there's a way – I think we talked about this on the show last year. Like I don't know that there is a way to like do this better. It's a good system. You can make things out of it, but it's just yeah, awkward. It's just sort of throwing monarch part points into a, a bucket and saying, mm, that's well, administrative. I, I upgraded my taxes or whatever. Well, but, but also just like – from the point of view of someone who's just starting the game, clicking on buttons, like I think every button that they click on except for estates and development is going to be within a cluster that they could understand. But if you click on that development button before you know what you're actually getting into and your entire map changes into a bunch of those little tiny buttons or you just see that list of numbers, it's going to be pretty horrifying. Yeah, I, I almost wonder if... There, we have too much direct control over development because, I don't know, the, I, I love the way that it interacts with institutions now because, like I said, it, it encourages you to develop urban centers and to develop corridors between those urban centers so you can, you know, cross-pollinate institutions, which makes a lot of sense. But it seems like that level of direct investment is kind of like... Um, the reason nobody plays communists in Victoria too, because state, you know, state control of all the factories is a headache and you'd rather just let the capitalists do it. Like I would rather have a system where I can pour my monarch power into investing in, you know, maybe that's what they could end up using estates for in the future into like an organization that is going to kind of decide how to develop my provinces in a more, you know, logical, that's, historical way. That's a good idea. I was also thinking that the uh, your advisors could be attached to the estates and, you know, you get their loyalty and influence buffs if you have, like, yeah. too many advisors from the same thing. Because usually it's just like, okay, whichever one I can afford is the one I'm going to pick. It's very rare to have that advisor thing be like a really interesting, legitimate choice. Well, maybe not very rare, but it's not that common. Yeah, rather than all this negative reinforcement, I would rather have a system that's more event-based where like my my estates will come to me every once in a while with a problem. And like I'm gonna have to, you know, decide how to choose it. I almost I I think back I think back to some degree to like the um, <laughs> this is going to be a really weird pull, but the the Dragon Age Origins expansion where you became noble of a, a castle for a little while and like people would come from the countryside to you with problems. I, I'd love to see more stuff like that in in EU four and CK two, or CK two has a lot more of it with the new events they've added. But but I feel like that's all the estates are already though. Because every 10 years you get that thing. It's like the burgers want something, but the uh, clergy wants it also. So what do you do? And then, you know, you look at whichever one is going to cause a coup if you (laughs) choose them and you pick the other one. Yeah, I mean, I I would I would like it to be more something where it's it's more of a it's more of an interesting decision rather than I'm just going to look at whichever one of these is is too powerful and I'm going to side with the one that is not. Um, yeah. You know, where I actually have to think about it in terms other than the immediate pragmatic, I don't want clerics taking over my government angle. I wanted to throw this other idea, as long as we're sort of on this topic, we were uh, looking, uh, there was a new development di- diary today, talking about the addition of ages into EU4, Age of Discovery, Age of Reformation, 
um and yeah. you know having you know kind of breaking the game up into these four ages that you have objectives during that give you certain abilities that can you know increase your stats or add you know other opportunities you know things like uh you know transferring vassals or 50 percent longer lasting claims or attack bonuses or all this and the eu4 part of me that just like is the game part was like this oh yeah this 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 looks interesting. This could be really good. But I have to admit, there was also that part of me that just went, oh, God, a whole, this looks like a whole other mechanic that now I have to be thinking about and worrying about. And it's going to pop up. And like, like when is, you know, when sort of is there a point for for adding in these mechanics and these elements, you know, to to the game where it's, you know, it's that's it's enough. It's done. <laughs> Yeah, and I've seen that criticism of it that the you know feature bloat is happening. I think to to Paradox's credit, they've been smart with a lot of this stuff in making it optional and making it something you know like the great power diplomacy options where you can continue playing the same way you're playing and ignoring it isn't really going to hurt you. It's just a new play style to open up. My main issue with the ages. Well, I think it could be a cool idea in theory. I think in practice, the way they have it set up right now is kind of weird in terms of each, you know, the, the transitions between ages happen at a set year. And also each age gives a buff to four specific nations that were powerful at that point, you know, in actual history. But it's like by the time you get to the age of revolutions, um, like we don't we don't know if if Great Britain's going to be a, even relevant at that point in an EU4 game. I mean, if if I'm playing yeah. as Scotland, I can guarantee you that they're not going to be. So, <laughs> you know, so that's the part of it that I thought was kind of weird is that on top of lucky nations, which are already a little bit of a controversial feature, they're adding in this like this is going to be, you know, Portugal's going to get extra bonuses during the Age of Discovery and Spain's going to get extra bonuses during uh the the next age the one the one that starts mm -hmm. in the 1500s whatever it's called uh reformation yeah the age of reformation it's, uh, yeah. the age of expand yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah so that i i think it's i think it i i come down on the side of the the camp that has been saying this is a good idea in theory but the execution right now is probably something that's going to need to be tweaked for maybe a couple of patch cycles before it gets where, where it needs to be to be a, a, a good feature. I mean, I think that it, if it is a replacement for the lucky nations, which is already, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how that works. I just know that it's something that they do to kind of make it look vaguely historical. Like I, that, that could work. I don't know. But um, the, what I'm interested in is the sort of quests in each, uh, in right. each one. This seems to be the We Played Civilization Six expansion, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it even has Golden Ages as yeah. a new mechanic. Yeah, but, uh -huh. but I think that's a good thing yeah. because players often get in ruts where they play in a certain way every time, and they might not even know that you know those great power options exist. And if you have quests that kind of encourage people to do that, I think that's going to be something that's way better than the mission system for helping new players understand how the game works. And, well, and I. That's love, an overall benefit that uh, I think is generally good. The only problem that I can see is if it forces someone like me, who's like, I have to check all the boxes, I have to check all the boxes, yeah. to yeah, that's my play in thought. ways that are counter to you know what might be best. But that's that's a personal thing for me that you know I can eventually get over. <laughs> I it, on my third or fourth game of Civ Six, I realized you know I'm not going to get the quests for every single research yeah. thing and i can't just <laughs> yeah. go ahead with them yeah no i love the idea of golden ages in historical strategy games i love the idea that like we're gonna pick our moment and we're gonna just be on you know boss mode for the next 50 years and make our mark on the world i love the idea of you know being able to actually click that button as sweden and be like it's it's Gustavus Adolphus time let's do this <laughs> like i i and you know the strategy inherent in that with you know spain might blow their golden age early and then you're going to plot to be like well yeah but i'm going to get back at them in the 1600s so they can go ahead and colonize whatever they want um i really like that aspect of it i really like 
you know, I think that's going to be a, a positive addition um, in terms of having set objectives required to unlock your golden age. I'm not sure whether I like that or not. I'll probably need to try it out myself to to develop a stronger impression of it. But golden ages are a good addition to this game, in my opinion. I would sort of prefer that they be triggered by like more subtle things and you just click a button that says golden age time um like if you have a monarch with you know 15 points and you can afford to have like three level two advisors then you get a golden age um that seems like that seems like it's sort of a reinforcement of the way that the game already works where the systems provide these things yeah but i would still like the uh, the ability to trigger it when i want but i would be okay if you know the conditions required to trigger it were something other than i've completed this quest log for this era yeah uh, because, like, you can get a Gustavus Adolphus-like thing if you're playing as Sweden and you're involved in the wars of religion and you get a really great ruler for this particular period of time. Like, you get the rampaging Sweden. Like, I have played in Sweden pretty regularly, probably more than any other thing in the historical thing, because I keep trying to get that <laughs> damn Baltic achievement. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, that's uh, <laughs> Like, you, you have these waves that roughly correspond to history where... You know, there are times where you can go on a rampage, and then in the 18th century, it's all about trying to consolidate and expand in teensy tiny little bits because it doesn't quite work anymore. And I'm not sure if that's the Lucky Nations or whatever, but it it just seems to already have that kind of that sort of thing. That I don't want that to be taken away or made too specific. Yeah, it's interesting because you made the comparison earlier to to Hearts of Iron 4 and just how specific the, you know, we have the upcoming expansion and a lot of that is based on creating these very specific decision trees for, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, uh, the British Raj, some of those things, which I'm excited about. I cannot wait to play them. But I think you saw something similar early on in EU Force development where there was lots of attention of, okay, we need an idea group for this country, an idea group for this country. And the one thing I do like about these newer, uh, you know, mechanics like institutions, like hopefully Golden Ages and and age of discovery and stuff like that um, is that it's it's applied at a broader level. It's it's applied to get you into position to make decisions in the game rather than having to click a button that says I choose to go down communist path or I choose to go down fascist path or I go choose to go down whatever path. And it says, great, okay, you've gone down here. I'm going to block off the rest of these, and this is the rest of your game sort of laid out in front of you. I'm kind of, gl- I, I do think uh, that that's one of the the, the things that I really like about a a mechanic like this that I think is reflected in a lot of what was done again in rights of man. Yeah. You know, the part of that is the historical scope where EU four takes place across several hundred years where parts of iron, you have a very specific thing where you can create a very choose your own adventure kind of thing. And it it, it Mm -hmm. works in different ways for both of them. The last thing I kind of want to touch on is I'm just curious about where does where does this go? Where does it end? Where's the next? I mean, you you look back on like a Hearts of Iron 3 or an Europa Universalis 3. Each of them had, you know, kind of a couple, two or three kind of major DLCs and some a few little bonus elements. Um, TJ, I don't know. Crusader Kings has two has what now? 12? 12 expansions? There... I think they're slightly behind EU4 just because oh, EU4's really? expansion expansion cycle has been a little bit faster. I think there may be one expansion behind, but yeah, they've had I think they they've have, had eight or nine at least. I thought they were um, at like fourteen. I remember I was I was I actually looked this specific thing up before, and I was ex- I was surprised to find that Crusader Kings was hmm. not the number one in terms of number of expansions released. I'm pretty sure it was EU4. Let's see. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, so okay. Reapers do is the eleventh right. expansion. Right, the man is so the maybe I'm wrong for EU four. So they they, yeah, maybe they, they jumped ahead. They got they get, they got caught up. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I mean it's an unenviable position for sure. Totally. Because and and, and let me start with this <sighs> statement. 
thank you. Like, I could not be more grateful (laughs) that I have all of this awesome stuff for one of my favorite games. Like, I'm not, I I don't want to be the looking the gift horse and the, hey, thanks a lot for making like nine different things for this cool game that I played for three years. Like, I don't want to be coming from that position. But I think, I mean, inevitably, at some point you have to, I assume, maybe, maybe not, Say okay, it's time to kind of reboot, re- you know, start over, move on from here, and and I don't see how you do that. But go ahead. Well, when we when we when we did the Crusader Kings Horse Lords episode last year, uh, the analogy I used is that the the they built a really good car, and at this point they're kind of going. Uh, you know, you think, do you think we could make this thing into a boat? Do you think we could put wings on it and make it into an airplane? You know, like adding all the tribal stuff and the step hordes and, and all that. It's, it's clearly not what the engine was designed for, but they've, they're kind of, you know, hacking it into a, a way where it can do that. Um, the greatest challenge really, and the one I would not want to have before me, it seems like is continuing to add features that are worth your money like you're gonna shell out that okay i need this dlc but that aren't going to disrupt the game for people who don't have that dlc which is why i was intrigued when i heard you use the term subscription earlier because i almost wonder if this type of game wouldn't work better if it was like some i don't i don't know like i really don't know this is why i'm not in in the business of making and selling games if you know the game just evolved and you know you paid a certain amount a year to get all the latest update i mean i guess that's kind of already what's going on but we don't want to deny access to people who don't want to keep paying for it because it, it traps them into this place where they have to keep adding mechanics that are big and substantial as dlc features that can be completely turned off or ignored and to me that just seems like it would be maddening i don't know i don't know how they're able to keep doing it yeah, I, I, there are a bunch of different things to go with here. Well, first of all, the Crusader Kings 2 thing, that Horse Lords podcast, I think we were like, okay, this game's about done. Like, they've done as, yeah. as much as they could. This is These are some <laughs> interesting things. And then this year they come out with, I think Conclave, like, reinvigorated the entire game for me. And Reaper's Due is good. It's not essential but it it does some interesting things and all of a sudden i'm playing crusader kings 2 again well and, and they're adding you know like character inventories for like you know holy relics and special masterwork swords and stuff in the next one like at this point they're making the car better they've given up on trying to you know make it into a boat or make it into a plane they're yeah. like no i think i think this can be a better car yeah let me show you how um <laughs> so uh- uh, Crusader Kings also has had the advantage of when it started, you could play as a Catholic or could you play as the Orthodox in vanilla? I think, yeah, yeah I, I think, think it was could. any Christian. Yeah. I think it was any Christian. Any yeah. Christian in, you know, greater Europe. And they have within the, you know, time period of uh, Hastings to um, the fall of Constantinople and they have had the ability that EU4 has not had that they can go bigger. They can take the map out to India. They can say, okay, here you can play Muslim rulers. They can make it go 100 years back into the past, 200 years back into the past. I think that they could perhaps, if they really wanted to have it go even another 100 years to um, the death of Muhammad and have the rise yeah. of Islam as an expansion. Um these are these are directions that CK2 can go that EU4 can't because it already starts with the entire map. You can already play as anyone on that map and they don't they can't go back into the CK2 era. So the only way they could go is forward and I think they having made Victoria 2, they realize that their mechanics don't really work for the 19th century. Um so they don't have those big obvious hooks like Something like CK2's Old Gods expansion had the huge hook of 200 years more of Crusader Kings and another really nice hook of you can play as the Norse now or pagans in general. And um, it also had a whole bunch of little stuff attached to that that was just – I think that's the point where it became – it went from this is a really interesting experiment that – create some great games a lot of the time to this is one of the greatest strategy games of all time and 
EU4 just doesn't have those options, which I don't know. Um, I I don't know how they keep doing it. Like, this is their ninth expansion. It's probably their best expansion. Um, but I'm glad that they're taking the attempts to do these things because this particular expansion has been very good for the game. But it seems like it's a very difficult position for them to be in. And, you know, maybe it's worth having a show where we interview uh martin or somebody well not martin anymore um but he would know the ideas of the the thought process yeah. but um yeah to, to go in a slightly different direction um when we're talking about is this like a good thing or a bad thing i want to talk about like i was thinking about xcom 2 the other day because i finally got my hands on the it's last apparently expansion and this is a game that had a bunch of really good ideas but was kind of a mess in combining all of those on release and if it had a paradox style expansion slash patch thing where it's constantly trying to iterate itself into a better game over you know every three months there's a big new thing saying here's what would make you know xcom 2 better i think that would be fantastic for that game i would love that i think it's going to go down as an interesting mess and it shouldn't because the stuff in it could be made great if they if you know for access or 2k wanted to go down that path and they don't seem to they seem to want to do a very specific expansion model that is not the same as paradoxes and like i guess there's it's good that there's room in the industry for the, both those sorts of things but i think that that's going to make xcom 2 weaker in the long run where games like crusader kings and eu4 or stellaris a game that was another form of interesting mess i think you know there's the potential that this is going to become you know the great the greatest space 4x game of all time because we know that paradox will put that energy into it whereas xcom 2 could easily be the greatest tactics games of of all time but i don't think for axis and uh 2k are going to put that energy into it you know you know who the number one developer i would want to adopt paradox's dlc model is is bethesda I've been saying that since Skyrim came out. Like, I don't give a crap about Elder Scrolls Six. Just keep adding new provinces to this game. Just, like, every couple years, another province, you know, add Morrowind one year, you know, two years later, you know, stick, you know, uh, you know, Daggerfall in there or whatever. Like, that's... I would love if Bethesda would adopt that, that DLC model. But, and then you look at what they did with Fallout 4 instead, and it's just like, I don't yeah. know what, what... What is your plan here? <laughs> I'm currently looking at, at Geochron, by the way, because when you said uh, uh, push CK2 back to the death of Muhammad, I'm looking at that map from 633 AD and I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> you got the Sassanid Empire, the Sassanid Persians are still around. You know, you got the big Avar Empire, Byzantium, super powerful. You've got the Visigothic Kingdom in Spain. I would play the shit out of that. You know, it's 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 funny kind of. Getting back to EU4 before we... Yeah. <laughs> You're too far afield. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 one of the things we were talking about earlier is how much we kind of wish, as as hundreds and hundreds of hours of EU4 players, um, that there was sort of some opportunity and time and investment um, to just go kind of refine and fix, for a lack of a better term. I'm not... Don't, you know, I don't mean everything's broken, but just to go play with a lot of these mechanics like uh, like estates and like development, I'd say like forts, um, you know, and, and and spend time just kind of taking that. Like I, w- I would almost be willing, and I realize I'm alone here, like it, just give me an expansion that sort of revamps and reiterates on, on some of those or give me a patch or two that does that uh, rather than kind of adding more and more mechanics. Uh, I'd be excited. But I mean, it, it's sort of, like you say, there's a there's so many there's there's this confining thing about making an EU four expansion. You know, you don't have the edges on the outside that you can push. You don't have the real opportunity to just sort of iterate on ideas. Um, there's only so much you can do. And again, I'm really impressed they've done what they can. Uh, I, I just don't. I don't know how many more there are. Like I, 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 and of course they'll come up with something brilliant, and I'll be on here in a year thinking, "Oh, can you believe I said that?" <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, they, there's a, a lot of space for them to do those iterations, but attaching it to the 
10 to 20 dollar expansions is really difficult and i do not envy them trying to do that but uh yeah they're also going to be doing this as tj noted with four games next year yeah yeah that's a good point and, 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 like i said on twitter anything else competing for my leisure time is going to have it rough in 2017 <laughs> <laughs> i mean even even if only even if each of those games got only two expansions i suspect some of them might get three that's eight paradox expansions in 12 months only two expansions just give me two yeah. expansions for each game we'll go I'm a, i'll go easy on you guys I, just two. I, I think that's well the thing is i think that's the minimum but yeah like, that's, I, that's and, been the pattern that's been the pace yeah yeah it's uh, been about three per year i think for ck2 yeah, two and or three yeah depending yeah depending on the game yeah yeah i think you i mean i think the mention of stellaris earlier is a really good one yeah i was i was playing that again recently and it's definitely like it, i can kind of see the evolution that i was looking for and i'm still in that place where i'm like oh man 2018 is going to be the year of stellaris <laughs> i'm just i'm gonna yeah. do nothing but play that game that you can't wait yeah i don't know the bank's Without going into too much detail, the Banks patch, the next big patch they're doing is looking like it might be it might be a breakthrough point for the game. They're making pops and pop factions way more significant uh, in a way that I'm pretty excited about. And then we'll just let EU4 gather dust <laughs> like it, it needs to. Put it out to pasture, let it let it uh let it go to stud with the other Paradox franchises. <laughs> So, uh, do you think there is a CK three or an EU five anywhere on the horizon? I'll kind of leave it. At I that. think I think there is probably a CK three on a whiteboard somewhere at Paradox. I think they're thinking about it at this point. I know, you know, in a non official capacity, not that this is anything that I have been told is actually in any form of development, but I know Henrik Ferreus, Doomdark has thought about what he would want Crusader Kings 3 to look like, and he's shared some of those thoughts with me in the past. So I, I think it's probably on a long-term projection, you know, it's somewhere in, in the depths of the Paradox offices, but I I'm don't think it's in production. I'm picturing it like the end of Raiders yet. of the Lost Ark with, like, the Ark in the big warehouse, yeah. like, just going into Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, th I think we'll see, I think we will see a classical antiquity game out of them, and I think we will see Victoria 3 out of them, before we see Crusader Kings three, but I could be totally wrong. I, I would I would say that we're going to see something else from PDS, uh, and then Crusader Kings three because this this engine is you know clearly being hammered into the specific kind of shape that they have got to know is something they can do better by now. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff that I know that they've wanted to do with CK2 that because of the limitations of that version of Klausowitz just have not been possible. China, uh, China, cadet, yeah, China, also cadet dynasties uh, has been been a sticky one that people have been asking for forever. Um, but I think yeah, that's a, that's a topic for a whole yes. other three MA yeah. is how I think that the 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 conception of dynasties and tying a player to a dynasty in CK2 is inherently flawed and would like to see it chucked out the window. So Yeah, I do I do kind of love though that you can't talk about one paradox game without sort of going to the others, right? There is the, yeah. there's that thread in between them which is awfully endearing to me. All right. Well, like you said we've we've given ourselves a few uh a few future topics to to go down the rabbit hole on, but I I think that is going to do it for this week. Uh Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn learn more about 3MA and discuss the show with the community on our forums at 3MovesAhead.net or follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash 3MA. This show is supported by an awesome community. And if you're interested in being part of supporting this show, please visit Patreon.com slash 3MA. We will be back next week with more strategy games discussion. Uh, for now, I think that's going to do it. Uh, thank you again, Rowan and TJ. I appreciate you joining me here on my uh, my my debut episode as as a uh, guest host. You did good, kid. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. That's what I needed. Can you send that to me in an email? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Until then, I'm Sean Sands. Good night.